We continue in our study of the entire scriptures. And if you are not following along, we do have cards out in the entryway across from the coffee bar. I think there could also be some on the welcome table. And what we try to get people to do is read each day through the scriptures, so you read through the entire Bible. And if you haven't been keeping up, you can start today, and that's fine, because you can then just go all the way to the end, and then you'll go back and start next year, because the reading plan we put together is going to be the reading plan we continue to use as a church. We also have the podcast, where you can listen to Pastor David read the scripture each day. Last week, we had a wonderful sermon on the book of Job, and I know it's interesting to have us get up here and try to cover an entire book in one message. That's a hard thing to do, and it's a challenge, because I'm more used to preaching through a book in the Bible or preaching through particular passages, but we really are trying to give much more of a broad perspective on all of Scripture. And today, we come to Psalms, some of the most beloved portions of Scripture, Psalms are poetry. They are not poetry, though, in the sense in which we often think about them. They really were used and put together to be sung in congregations. And so in ancient Israel, this songbook was put together. And so you'll see notations sometimes in the, in the Psalms to the song director. Or you'll see the word selah, that everybody argues over what it means. And the truth is we don't really know what it means, but you know it's a notation for the song leader, or for the congregation as they are singing. And interesting, when the pilgrims first came here to America, the only songs that were sung in church were the Psalms. It's called the Bay Psalm Book. It was the first book also published in America, was a version of the Psalms to be used for worship. So these Psalms, as much as we read them devotionally and meditate on them, in truth they were a congregational um, group of poems. And they begin, obviously, with Psalm 1, which is a psalm about the choices we make and how we live. And the very last psalm, Psalm 150, it's like their bookends, are songs about praising God. And everything in between is for the congregation to understand how to live and how God gets us through the good times and the difficult times. But it begins with the choices we make, and it ends with worshiping and praising God. Amen? And in this first psalm, it talks about living the right way and finding happiness. Now, sometimes we like to point out that there's a difference between happiness and joy, and that is because happiness is a term that we usually use about things making us happy or people making us happy, whereas joy is a condition of our heart no matter what the, the things are around us. But the psalmist does something very interesting the psalmist points out that as long as our focus and our happiness comes from God, that God will make us happy. Hear that? As long as our focus is not on all the temporal things around us, that as long as we look to God to give us the happiness, once we are able to transform our thinking to that, we will discover a genuine joy, but also a happiness in situations because the other things in life will not get us down. Jesus talks about the same thing, and we'll look at that in the New Testament, Beatitudes. Because in our world, there is a false sense of happiness. Think about that. All kinds of people will pro promote and advertise that they can make you happy. It's always because of faulty thinking or having the wrong things. And there are things that promise that instant gratification, 
or this relationship will be able to fix you, or take this vacation and you'll be able to post it all over the internet and you'll just be the happiest person. All the while, those things do not make us happy. And if we keep looking to the world and the wrong things for our joy and our happiness, we get that false promise that instant gratification will do something good for us, and it won't. It will leave us empty. It's another one of those black holes that just can't be filled. But the true promise is that if our lives are properly built, we will have a long-term happiness. And the happiness is because it will be God who makes us happy. So whatever we're going through, because our focus is on what God is doing in our life, we'll be able to answer this question, what's great about this, even when going through bad things? Think about it. If it's the thing I'm focused on, there's nothing great. But if it's God that I'm focusing on, even the difficult things in life, there's something great. Helps me trust God. Helps me identify with people who've gone through similar kind of circumstances. Helps me understand people who maybe I didn't formerly understand. See, as long as I get the focus off of the circumstances and onto what God's doing, then I can find even in the things that are difficult that God will make us happy. And it's a promise in Scripture that as long as our focus goes to the right place, life will be better. Amen? And that's why we're here, to learn more about this wisdom of the Scripture. But before we look at Psalm 1, I'd like to talk about one of my three favorite kinds of movies. I've shared with you two of them so far. I love Christian movies. Worse acting, the better they are. (laughs) I love Christmas movies. They all end the same way. Everything always works out great. And I love summer movies. Summer movies are a thing. Now, one of the things I discovered when I thought about summer movies is everybody agrees that there is such a thing as a summer movie, but people have different reasons for why they call them summer movies. A lot of them are because they came out during the summer, and many of us saw them in drive-ins, right? Some of them are because they have a summer theme. Others are just because we watch them in the summer. So I did my little search on the internet, and I tried to see what are the most popular summer movies. And now this is where we have audience participation. What do you think are the most popular summer movies? We'll see how many of my lists you can get. What is it? No, that's a new one. Summer Magic? I don't know it. That means I get to grow in my love of summer movies. You gave me a new one. Thank you. I will love it. It'll be in next week's sermon. Jaws? Number one summer movie. Number one, blows everybody else out of, the, out of the water, ha, 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 is Jaws. No question. Give me two more. Who said that? You stole my thunder. That's what I'm preaching on today, but we'll come back to it. You must have talked to my wife. She must have hit it. And give me one more. Goonies. Not the one on my list, but that's Okay. Here's ones that I came up with that seem to appear on everybody's list. Forrest Gump. Okay? E.T. Listed as a summer movie. Top Gun. A lot of these are because they came out in the summer, and again, that's why people identify them also with when they watched them. Number one, by far, everybody's number one summer movie, Jaws. 
But for me, my favorite one, sorry, is Greece. Now, do not go to Greece and expect good morals from Pastor Stan. I'm sorry, it's embarrassing. We had a family fight one time, when not with us immediate family, but with our extended family, when we're all doing a family movie, and I suggested Greece. Regina and I said, yeah, we love the movie. And family members were like shocked and appalled. You're a minister and you like that movie? <laughs> sorry, I do, but that's just the truth. I haven't watched it yet. Let me tell you what I love about Greece. A bunch of young high school students getting ready to graduate with a whole bunch of problems. And they try all kinds of things. They try quick fixes. They try gossip. The pink ladies think that that somehow is going to give them great meaning. They try spontaneous decisions. Remember Frenchie who goes and becomes a high school dropout to go to the beauty school, only she becomes a beauty school dropout because she realizes she can't get her life together so quickly by just making that kind of a quick change. They think that peer pressure is going to somehow solve their life. And so at the time in which, first of all, how many Greece people do we have in here? How many of you know the movie pretty well, so you're at least catching the references? Well, when Sandra Dee and Danny meet for the first time after they've met for the summer, they're excited to see each other, and of course, immediately peer pressure starts coming in and, and does a great amount of damage to the relationship. But in the end, what I love about the movie is they all individually sort of are on their own little journey, and they all have to do hard work and finally have to figure it out. And if you look at it from that perspective, you start seeing common grace, God's grace, working even through things like the movie Grease, where God works through these directors to give a message that we can look and we can say, well, there is a lot of truth to that. When you learn to work hard and do the right things, Things do get better, just like the first psalm tells us. That's why my favorite scene in Greece is at the end when Danny Zuko, this greaser, this guy who, because of peer pressure, is really never going to be accepted as having a relationship with Sandra D. Do you remember what he did? He decided to let her in a sport. And he tried all these different things until finally he goes out for track and he does all the hard work. And so at the final scene of the movie, there he is with his, not leather jacket, but his, his sweater and the letter on it. And you see that hard work pays off. And that's a lot of what the first psalm is all about. That's why this morning I would like to ask you to think of Psalm 1 as the grease of the Bible. <laughs> You'll never forget it. Hard work and doing the right thing pays off. Wrong decisions don't. That's the point of grease. That's the point of the first psalm. Hard work and making the right decisions pays off. And again, the psalmist is going to tell us we get long-term happiness. Making the wrong decisions and having the quick fixes does not. The psalm begins with these words, blessed is the one. The word blessed is the Hebrew word ashway. It's translated blessed, but it means happiness. It occurs 44 times in the Old Testament, always about true happiness that takes work. The Old Testament scriptures say the right kind of happiness is not from the circumstances in life, but learning to live the right way and letting God make us happy and restore the joy into our lives. Jesus says the same thing when you come to his teachings in the New Testament and you turn to Matthew chapter 5 and you read the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus is giving the Beatitudes... Happy are, he says. Blessed are. Same word, reoccurs. 
happy are. How do you find happiness? Buying a new car? No. Getting your favorite Harley? Sorry, it doesn't bring happiness. <laughs> Getting the perfect job? No. Jesus said, how do you get it? You do it from making the right choices and learning to be poor in spirit. Learning to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Learning to be merciful and a peacemaker. And Jesus is pointing out the same thing that the psalmist is pointing out, that there is a happiness that we can attain in life, but it comes from making the right choices and living the right way. Amen? Amen. And doing stuff that's just going to be a black hole that's going to frustrate us and is going to let us down is not going to give us what we need and what we have and what we can have in our relationship with God. So how do we receive this happiness, this being blessed that the psalmist talks about, that you find in the Old Testament, and that Jesus talks about? Well, it begins with knowing what to avoid. We don't really need to go further than that. One of the reasons that Americans are so discontent is because they're seeking all the wrong things in all the wrong places with all the wrong ideas, expecting it to make them happy. As Dave Ramsey says, people buy things they don't need with money they don't have to impress people that don't matter, and then they wonder why their lives are frustrating. And where does the psalmist begin? Where does this wonderful liturgical book that we're supposed to be using in worship, where does it start? It starts by saying, you've got to learn what to avoid in life, folks. He says, blessed, happy is the one who doesn't walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of the sinners or take a seat in the company of the mockers. There's three things that the psalmist is telling us to avoid. The first one is bad advice. Walking in step with the wicked means we're listening to people that their own lives are messed up, but somehow we're thinking that maybe if they tell us what to do or we try doing what they do, that somehow it's going to work for us and it doesn't work. That's an awful lot of what social media is built on in our society. Looking at other people and thinking, well, if I only, maybe, hey, they took that big vacation, I can't afford it, but if I take that big vacation, I'll be happy, and then we come back. I had the conversation with somebody not long ago. They had this huge thing they decided to do, only to discover they couldn't afford to pay for it, now they're paying the price for it, and are miserable because of a decision they made. We don't need to take the advice of others when their advice isn't good. We need to know, the psalmist says, who we're listening to. The worst decision I ever made in my life was awful. And I'm not going to tell you what it was because it doesn't matter. But it was devastating. And one day, my oldest brother called me up on the phone and he said, I hear you're really struggling. And I said, I am. And I told him what I did. And he goes, that was a really stupid thing you did. I said, thank you, Ralph. You're making me feel better. He said, why did you do that? And I told him who I went to for advice. And he goes, well, that's the worst person to go for advice. Look at their life. Their life is a mess. And then he asked me a question, a serious question. He said, why didn't you call me? I'm your older brother. And I took from that thought about it. My older brother was a doctor. My older brother was a leader in the church. My older brother was a very wise and wonderful person who cared about me. But I chose to go somewhere else for advice, and it didn't work out well. The psalmist says, do you know who you're going to advice for? People will tell you all kinds of stuff. That doesn't mean because somebody else says it, it's the right thing to do. So if we know what to avoid, it begins with 
Let's avoid taking that advice that's not going to work and somehow think that maybe if we make that person happy because we do what they tell us to do, that it's going to work for us only to find ourselves in a mess, amen? And yet far too many people do it. Then the psalmist goes on and says, not only do you need to know what to avoid, you need to learn to avoid unhealthy situations. He calls it stand in the way that sinners take. Stand in the way that sinners take. Now, hopefully we all know what the word sin is, or a number of us do. What does the word sin mean? Missing the mark. It's an archery term. It's the archer would stand and shoot at the bullseye, would miss the mark, would miss the bullseye, and therefore we are all sinners. Every one of us misses a mark in our life. We don't get everything perfect. And that word, harmatia, which is used in the New Testament, it, it's used throughout Scripture, points out to the fact that people do wrong things. Amen? What the psalmist says is, watch out for the person who always does the wrong thing because we know them in our life. We've seen people that no matter what, they just never get it right. It doesn't mean we don't love them. It doesn't mean we don't have ministry with them. It doesn't mean we don't accept them in our family or accept them into groups we're involved with. But if we constantly put ourselves in the place of people who are always doing the wrong thing, guess what? It's sort of like the, the phrase that we use with people in recovery. If you sit around the barbershop long enough, eventually you're going to get a shave. It's what the psalmist is telling us, folks. We need to learn to avoid those unhealthy situations. And finally, the psalmist says, we also need to avoid toxic people. I know that's a tough one for an awful lot of us because when we look at people in our lives, we discover that there are some relationships that are toxic relationships and toxic people, and we need to be able to have healthy boundaries so that we don't just get taken down. I went and... I read an article from Psychology Today. It was written by Dr. George Everly, who teaches at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And he talked about having toxic relationships. And what the psalmist tells us is sitting in the company of mockers is what we should avoid. And that's all the places where we're in these relationships with people that we know there's just something wrong. We just walk away, and every time we go, why do I walk away from this situation and this person? And I always just feel like I'm way worse than I was before. Ever had that experience in life? People in our lives that we're like, I just don't get it. It's like every single time, no matter what I do, and no matter what I try to have as a conversation, it always seems to go south. Well, Dr. Everly said there's four basic kinds of toxic people or toxic relationships. One is with a narcissist. Narcissists seem adventurous and risk-taking. They're superficially charming. They're glib and exciting. But at the same time, they're possessive, verbally abusive, and sometimes physically abusive. They can be controlling and intimidating towards people who disagree with them. They seek friends who tend to be needy so friends can look up to them. And they target people who have low self-esteem. They have a sense of entitlement 
that leads to a remarkable selfishness. And if we have people who are narcissists in our life, it doesn't mean we hate them. It doesn't mean we never spend time with them, but it means we make sure that we have boundaries. Amen? And we learn to have healthy boundaries. Because narcissistic people and narcissistic relationships can do incredible damage. And what the psalmist is telling us is if we're going to learn how to be happy, we need to learn what to avoid. Another group of people that Dr. Everly talks about as toxic people in relationships are what we often joke about is a frenemy. They seem like a friend, but they aren't. They act like a friend, but only when you're in a time of need. The desire to help is always based on their sense of superiority, and they don't really like it when you're happy. Hear me? There are people in this world who do not like it when you're happy. I've experienced it in my own life. I remember one of the great things that happened in our life, and we shared it with somebody that we thought was a friend, and they were very upset. Why didn't it happen to them? That's not healthy. Those are not things that are going to build us up. They will sabotage your happiness because they become jealous and possessive and aggressive. Another type, he says, are the negative complainers. Nothing's ever good enough for them. They're always more than willing to let you know what's wrong, and they appear pleasant in a superficial level, but they really are manipulative and masters of passive-aggressive behavior. They are the group of people for which we've come up with the term misery likes company. And so if you're not miserable, they're not happy. And remember, the psalmist is saying, how do we find joy in our life? How do we live a positive, encouraging Christian life? How do we experience what Jesus is going to talk about as the abundant Christian life? And the psalmist says, you've got to learn to avoid certain situations and certain people. Finally, he says, avoid those who are overly dramatic. They can be great fun and the life of the party and charming and exciting until all of a sudden we realize that they're just always wanting attention. They're risk takers because they're painfully insecure. They compensate for their own insecurity by being superficial. They're constantly craving for attention. And they learn to judge others by external criteria. How you look, who you know. And they discard people. Because if you don't fit into what the person who's overly dramatic feels is going to make them feel good, then you're really not that important anyhow. And how valuable is a relationship like that anyway? And so what the psalmist says is not only do we need to realize blessed is the one who doesn't take advice from those who are constantly making wrong choices, but also stand in the way of sinners. Stand in the place and, and absorb ourselves with relationships that aren't going to be healthy and aren't going to build us up. Because God puts people in our lives to help enhance us as we help enhance them. And that's what true Christian living is about. Learning to have healthy relationships with people so that we're better as we move forward. When we join with those who are negative, those who tear us down, there's two dangers that happen. One, they suck us dry, amen? I'm going to say that again. They suck us dry, amen? And the other thing is we become like them. 
Hear that? We become like them. If I spend all of my time in negative, toxic situations, I'm going to be a negative, toxic person. And again, that's why in recovery we tell people, hang around with winners. We tell the person who comes into the first meeting to get their life together, look at somebody who's got 20, 30 years sobriety and whose life is good, and befriend them. Because what we discover is the psalmist is right. If we're going to have that kind of happiness that God wants us to have, we've got to learn what to avoid. But then the psalmist says, you don't just learn to avoid certain things, we need to know what to pursue. And so in verse 2, the psalmist goes on and says, what do we pursue once we learn what to stay away from? Bad situations, toxic relationships, advice that's never going to work because it's always the wrong advice. So now what do we do instead of that? Delight yourself in the law of the Lord and meditate on God's law day and night. Hear that? God doesn't say, avoid certain things in your life and just go figure it out all by yourself. God says, avoid certain things in your life, and having learned to avoid certain things in your life, now learn where becomes the source of truth. And that's why God's given to us scripture. You see, the word law is is the word Torah, which is also used by the time the psalmist is writing it for the first five books of the Bible. Well, now we have 66 books to go to. We have plenty of source of wisdom for us to read and refresh our soul with and learn what God wants for us. The point is we get to make the choice. Every single day I get to choose what I'm going to fill my mind with. Am I going to get up in the morning and turn on social media? Am I going to watch the new shows that are going to tell me that everything's wrong in this world? Am I going to just do everything that's negative and fills my life with depression and then walk around and go, man, life is awful? I've run into people who are all upset about something that they have no control over. Never really going to affect them. And they're constantly always worried about it because it's something that, haven't you seen it? And I go, what do you mean? It's all over social media. No, I didn't notice it on my Facebook page. Well, it's all on the news. Well, what TV station are you watching? You see what happens? It's very easy to get sucked dry in life by getting our information and our wisdom from the wrong place, which is not wisdom. And so what the Scripture tells us is instead, go to the source of true wisdom, to Scripture. Think of all the ways in which God makes His Word available to us today. We have devotionals. We hand two of them out over on our table across from our coffee bar. We write our own devotional as a church. It's called Encouraging Words, and we send it out five days a week. We have a read-through-the-Bible Not only a a guide to help you read through the Bible, but also we do a podcast so you can listen to Scripture every single day. We have faith groups. Somebody asked me last night, somebody's visiting in the church, they said, how many small groups do you have? I go, I don't know, about 20? Think about that, about 20 different places you can connect with other people reading the Bible and reading it with them and absorbing God's Word into our life. We also have this, and we all know what this is. What is it? I didn't hear you. It's my pocket Bible that has a couple of other cool apps on it. It also takes pictures. I know that because I'm going to take one of all of you right now. You've never seen anybody take a picture with a Bible. You're going to see it right here. Cool. I just took a picture with my Bible. 
Because the truth is, everywhere I go, I can turn to BibleGateway.com. I can download the U version of the Bible. I can listen to K-Love Radio. God's word is all around us, folks. We do not have an excuse. We do not have to be like the people when the Psalms were written, getting excited to go to the temple so that we would sing the Psalms and we would get the truth and the wisdom and we had to memorize it and go share it with our friends. It's available to us 24-7. And when we're having a bad day and we're making wrong choices and life isn't going well, why don't we turn to it? Why don't we say, if God's word is there for me, how can I access it? I decided to take my pocket Bible and something called Google. Any of you ever heard of Google? (laughs) I pulled up Google on my Bible and I said, thank you, Jesus. What a great tool you've given me on my pocket Bible. And I typed in these words, promises in the Bible. That's it. Promises in the Bible. And listen to the first three that came up. God is always with me. Wow, that's a good thing to remember. God is always with me. Came up with a Bible verse, Joshua 1.9. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I didn't look up that verse. God looked it up through Google. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. And then the next one that came up is God is faithful, Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for God who promised is faithful. Wow, that means I get to get up in the morning and turn on the news and say, wow, the world is awful, there's nothing I can do about it. Or turn on social media and say, I'm not good enough because everybody else's life is better than me. Or I can type in promises in the Bible and hear things like, God is faithful in your life. I'd rather take that one. Learn what to avoid, the psalmist says, and learn what to fill our lives with. The last promise I found is God is compassionate, Isaiah 54.10. Though the mountains be shaken, that means bad things happen. Hear me? Bad things happen. It feels like the mountains are shaken. How many of us have ever felt like the mountains shook around us? Let's be honest. Something bad happened. We're like, how in the world did this happen? I wish I could change that circumstance, and I can't. I wish it didn't happen, but it did. I wish I could have prevented it, but I'm not God, and I'm not big enough and powerful enough. And the mountains were shaken. And though the hills be removed, something that I was really counting on was taken away. It was gone. I'd hoped for it, and I had my faith in it, But I realized at that moment, I shouldn't have had my faith in it. I should have had my faith in God. Yet, Isaiah says, the Lord's unfailing kindness for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. And so in the midst of a dark and difficult situation, just a simple little Google search of God's promises in the Bible, on my pocket Bible, reminds me that my focus is in the wrong place. And that's what the psalmist is teaching us. Quit looking for peace and joy and happiness in the things that will never deliver, in the relationships that are toxic, in the people who always make us feel bad, taking advice from people whose own lives have spiraled out of control, but now they want us to do what they're doing to somehow make them feel better, and listening to stuff that always tears us down, and instead the psalmist says, go to the source of life. 
Go to the place where you'll hear the things that will truly fill your soul and my soul with a peace because God's Holy Spirit is living inside you and me. Amen? Amen. And that means you're valuable. God doesn't entrust his spirit to anything. God puts his spirit in places that matter, and that means you and I matter. And since we matter to God, let's learn to matter to ourselves in what we fill our minds with, what we think about, and what we'll be focused on, and then we discover what happiness looks like. Verse 3, the psalmist says, the person who's learned to do the difficult things of walking away from what they need to walk away from and filling their minds and their lives what they should be filled with is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. This is an image of long-term happiness, of learning to plant ourselves in the right place so that we can have joy and fulfillment in our lives. One of the things that Regina and I love to do is travel to Arizona. Do we have any Arizona fans here? Anybody else? It's gorgeous. There's two things I like about Arizona. There's a lot of more, but two in particular. One is flat and open like North Dakota. I can be outside and see things rather than just trees. Second thing is it's really fun. As much as I like winter, and I do, I love winter, it's really fun to be in Arizona in February when it's 75 degrees and put something like enjoying the pool when you all have a blizzard here and you can't even start your cars. It's great. (laughs) But in our trip to Arizona, one of the places that Regina and I have discovered And it was interesting. We were just out one day driving around, and somebody sent us to something else. It was called the V-Bar-V Ranch, where they have these wonderful pictographs from Native Americans. And so we went for that. And as we're driving down the road, there's a little sign, and it said Montezuma's Well. And so we drove over to it, and it's become one of our favorite places that we go to. And you see what it is in the middle of a desert? There's a deep well. And it's really deep. And they send scuba divers down. And it's been there forever. And it has been used as an irrigation for farmers since 1100. Because people knew that if they lived near that, it would never run out of water. Also, interestingly, it's a unique place on our planet that has five species that only live in Montezuma's well. Now, if you look up, I don't know if you can see it in this picture, but I think you kind of can. Those are cave dwellings up there. That's because Native Americans would live there because they knew that they could have crops there. And as they put this whole irrigation system in 1300, well before Europeans ever came to America, there was already an irrigation system in, and the irrigation system is still there. And as you walk around, you're in the middle of a desert, and you start seeing trees. And if you look further, you got big trees, and it's the middle of the summer, and it's hot, but it's cool there because all of these beautiful trees are growing. Here's the point. When you plant your garden by Montezuma's well, it's going to grow. When you plant your tree by Montezuma's well, it's going to do well. You can be in the middle of the desert, and if you are in the desert of life, and you feel like the 21st century is a desert, and you're like, I just cannot get myself grounded because there's too much negativity, there's too much stuff that gets me down, there's too many negative naysayers of Nabom who make me feel bad about myself, there's too much stuff that I see out there that is scary for my family. Where am I planting my tree? Am I planting it in the middle of that desert? Or am I looking for Montezuma's well? Am I looking to put my life in the place 
where it will get nourishment and refreshment. And therefore, large groups of people have lived by Montezuma's well. Whole communities have been able to plant themselves there. And when the Europeans came in, we even had a post office there because people discovered that that was a good place in the middle of a desert to have a good life. That's what the psalmist is telling us. You want to know what happiness looks like? It looks like learning to walk away from the desert and thinking that, you know, it didn't work the last 20 times in my life, but maybe this time, if I do the same thing, it'll turn out. Albert Einstein said, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results and learning to do the opposite of that. Saying, I need to get the wisdom of God's word in my life. Amen? I need to be focusing somewhere else. I need to be listening to what the Lord has to say to me today. And so as we move into the Psalms, I invite you to spend this week reading the grease of the Bible. The book that reminds us that we all make wrong choices and we've all messed up and done the wrong things and we've all expected the quick fix and we've all thought that the gossip session would make us feel better. And we've all come to the point where we've thought that maybe if I did it this time, it would work out, and it didn't. And now it's time for us to do the hard work and realize every single day that God's word is there available for us to refresh us and to refresh our souls. As we close our service, I invite our elders of our church to come forward. And if you struggle in your life, or if you know somebody who struggled in their life, because they're constantly seeking after the wrong thing. I invite you to come forward for prayer. It doesn't just have to be for you. It can be for someone else. You can come forward and say, you know, there's somebody in my life who just life never works out for. Could we just take a moment and pray for them? And as we close our service, I invite anybody who would like to come forward for prayer to please come forward and let us stand together.